Hey, Philly, are you doom scrolling? Well, cut it out. There's a better way to get your news. Philadelphia's local news podcast is called The John Cast. Check out The John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. All eyes these days when it comes to American foreign policy are trained on the situation in Ukraine. But it wasn't that long ago when Afghanistan was the main focus. Think last year when the U.S. pulled troops out after some 20 years in the country. You don't hear much about Afghanistan now in the media, but its problems haven't gone away. It is still a very, very troubled country, and with the Taliban back in charge, many of the gains women had made over the past 20 years have been rolled back or are in danger of being rolled back. We wanted to talk more about the current situation in Afghanistan, so we caught up with Dr. Lisa Balione. She is a professor of political science at St. Joseph's University. So it's interesting, Afghanistan dominated the headlines once the U.S. pulled out back in August, and for a while it was the top story almost everywhere you look, but it eventually faded, and now our Media foreign policy attention is obviously focused on Ukraine. You don't hear very much about Afghanistan. So kind of in general, what have the last several months been like for Afghanistan? There was a lot of concern about the Taliban taking the country back to what it was like the first time they were in power. Has it been that extreme? What do we know? It is very difficult right now. And in some ways, the move towards regressive policies maybe is slower, but there are even bigger problems. Uh, Afghanistan has just gone through or is, is experiencing its worst drought in 27 years. And that drought, as you might imagine, has a terrible impact on the food supply. In addition, as a result of the end of the American involvement and the takeover of the Taliban, there is a much greater financial crisis for two reasons. Number one, uh, because Afghan monies abroad have been frozen, and so the Taliban can't touch it. And number two, because the economy that emerged or that has been in existence for the last 20 years at this, well, by August, 43% of the GDP was coming from foreign donors. And that money is gone. Okay, that money has been taken out. So that means there's no money to pay salaries. They're really stretched or or a third of the, you know, 40% is gone. The other element, and I forgot, I guess there's a third point, is that so many skilled people have left if they could you lose an enormous amount of of skilled folks who have fled. Uh, I think I have, the data was about five, over five million internally displaced and another um, 2.6 refugees. So those 2.6 million refugees matter. So, So that's just the baseline. And then of course, those people who follow what's been going on with human rights, are really concerned. And they're particularly concerned about women's human rights, uh, women and girls. And they worry about those women suffering for a few basic reasons. Number one, they see uh, an increase in 
domestic violence or what we might call gender-based violence. Number two, women in, it's, it's not uniform throughout the country, but it's imposed in some places. Women are not allowed to walk around without a male accompanier. And because people are afraid that or they're not sure where that accompaniment rule is going, where and when it'll be implemented. A lot of women and their families and girls have just, they self-censor. They decide to stay home because it's too dangerous. And then number three, women have been kicked out of the economy, except in teaching uh, for K through six or as nurses. But even there, in some places, nurses have to wear the hijab, uh, not, uh, the, the burqa, as well as their nursing uniform, and it, they can't like work very well. Some people can't get to work because they don't have a male accompanier. And what I understand is that many hospitals and schools, they're not paying their salaries because, again, the government has no money, and these are, in most cases, civil servants. And so people just aren't showing up. It's a really dire for many people. The humanitarian situation is really quite scary. I mean, again, we've been looking at what's happening in Ukraine, but but this is terrible too. One of the things is it seemed like, and I guess the school year in Afghanistan starts in March, or at least a portion of it starts in March. And there was a belief that the Taliban were going to allow women, I think it's above sixth grade, go to school. And I don't want to say there was excitement about that, but uh, there was positive thinking about that. And then all of a sudden that was reversed at the, the last minute. And you talk about regressive policies and it seems like they're kind of in a in a slow burn with this type of stuff. They know where they want to go. They don't think they can do it right away, but they kind of gradually do this when the world's attention is elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And it was devastating to so many girls and their families when the schools ultimately weren't open to girls over the age of, or girls going into seventh grade. And so this is very related to Taliban thinking about the need to separate boys and girls, men and women, especially once girls are going through puberty. Afghanistan has a a so-called honor culture and the notion of a family's honor is totally tied to the idea that the women in the family are pure, have not been, are not involved, have not had any kind of any any either sex clearly sexual encounter or even potential stain on their reputation and so to prevent that women and girls have to be separated from boys and men that are not their relatives and so the risk of sending these girls to school, seventh grade, assuming that that, that puberty would come somewhere then, that's what's driving it. Uh, that's what drives the desire to, one of the things, to cover women totally and to keep women separated and home because of the sense that uh, they're too tempting to men and uh, women need to remain pure or 
or the whole family's reputation and therefore social standing is jeopardized. I've read and I remember hearing this once the U.S. left, but that there was a bit of a, I don't know if divides the word, but there was the older Taliban who were hardline across the board. Everything we've talked about to the nth degree, no exceptions, but that there were younger members of the Taliban who were, I don't want to say progressive, but a little bit more pragmatic, maybe is the word I've heard thrown around. Like, listen, if we want to be on the world stage, we have to do A, B, and C. Uh, How, from what you have seen, what you have read, what you know, how much is that true that there is a, like I said, I don't know if it's a rift, but a a push-pull between the generations within the Taliban about how restrictive things should be? Yeah, that that certainly was the narrative, and that certainly was the hope. All I can talk about is what they've done. So upon coming into power, the old government had some female ministers in it, and even any non-Taliban, let alone women, have been pushed out of the government. And the actual ministers are all very much of this, what we might call hardline faction. So that's really concerning. Then we also know, especially with respect to gender issues, the Taliban closed uh, the Ministry of Women's Affairs, which was devoted towards uh, enhancing women's abilities to Uh, to function in the economy, in the society. And there were actually even some protective services, for instance, against violence against women and girls. And instead, the Taliban reinstituted the Ministry for the Prevention of Vice and the Promotion of Virtue, which was, those were those those cops going around uh, looking for not only women who maybe showed a wrist, but men whose beards weren't all in or people listening to music or people unrelated men and women uh, interacting. So this is a this is a really bad sign. What does it say? And I don't know, this is a big picture, but the U.S. spent 20 years. How many people died for the cause? the billions, if not trillions of dollars that was dumped into the country. And in half a year, give or take, we're to this point. Like, is there anything outside forces can do? Or is this something that if we truly want change, it has to come from the Afghan people? Yeah, it is. It's such a tragedy on so many levels. 157,000 Afghans killed, 43,000 of them were fighters. This is as of January of 2020. For 18 years, with respect to U.S., 4,000 troops killed, troops and contractors, 20,000 U.S. wounded. I don't have the money figures, but huge. The coverage of this summer was really deceptive because well and me and we, perhaps we were deceiving ourselves because we were hearing that well sure sure they'll be able to hold on they'll never get cobbled 
But if you go back and you look in April of 2021, when President Biden says he's going to, the U.S. had been obligated to get out or the Trump administration by May. And Biden says, we're going to we're going to wait till um, September 11th to get out. Uh, but at that point, if you look at the maps, the Taliban controlled a third of the territory. The government about, I, I was looking at maps and it wasn't measured out. So this is my eyeballing, about a third of the territory. The government controlled about a third of the territory and a third of the territory was contested. And if you also go back to the Trump administration's completing of this agreement back in uh, February of 2020, and you look at what the agreement says, the United States is making this agreement, you know, in many ways from a position of weakness. We're saying we are pulling out, um, and, and that's what we give the Taliban and why we're doing it is we want the Taliban to stop attacking Americans for the next, for the interim before we get out. We want them to stop um, mass casualty, casualty attacks. And we want them to promise that they won't be a haven, a safe haven for terrorists. So that's what the Trump administration got out of the agreement, but there's no promise for post, right? And if that's the best we could get back in February of 2020, that tells me that we knew, I mean, I do know that the Trump administration had a goal of removing Americans and ending the forever wars, but clearly we're not doing this from a position of strength. We're negotiating with the Taliban. We, the Taliban refused to negotiate with the, um, the, the government so that just shows you the weakness of the government. And, and in addition, if you listen, there, there are several really good documentaries that come out of um, the front line, believe it or not, on PBS, and that went back in August and September. And you hear just how unpopular the government is in many areas, especially outside of Kabul, because of the enormous corruption and violence in which they're engaged in. So back to your big question about like, is there anything we can do? You know, Afghan, Afghanistan has a 40 plus year history of violence and division. This is a country that is divided by ethnicity. It's divided by religious sect. It's divided by this urban rural sensibility. And a really another really important one is not just religious sect, but this view on whether they want to have this seventh century idea of what Islam is, or a, uh, a, a more of a 21st century idea of what Islam is. And so the government, while it argued that it was all-inclusive it had these views of uniting. It really couldn't and didn't do that. And perhaps the situation was impossible. I mean, I think that Americans in 2001 and beyond had, we believed our own wishes too much, right? That 
all they needed was to be liberated from this horrific repressive regime and democracy would follow. But we didn't understand the ways in which in which these kinds of divisions, corruption, and really regressive beliefs would have an impact. And the division and corruption go really hand in hand. And the fact that Afghanistan was suffering from, at that point, 30 years of, or 20, 20 years of violence, because you don't have uh, a usable state, right? Usable and, and, and trustworthy administration and police and military. One of the things going back in, in rereading some materials, just coming over and over again, back and back, back to repeatedly, was this notion about how often in Afghanistan over the past 40 years, you've had score settling. So when the when the Soviets and the communists take over, they kill lots of folks who they see as retrograde. And then the communists are kicked out and there's, and I'm not just talking about people at the top, I'm talking about it, it permeating all the way through. And that happens, it happens in, you know, the late 70s, it into the 80s, it happens then, you know, in the 90s, and then you have the Civil War, and then with the Taliban, and then again, uh, after 2001. And so it's happening again now from what from what we understand or what folks are fearing. And it's, yeah, it's, it's so humbling and so depressing. Talked about how much of the money, you know, even when the U.S. was there, that was coming from the outside. Is there any hope? And once again, you're, I'm probably looking at this through Western eyes and through a capitalistic system, you know, but do you think there's a feeling with the Taliban that there could be international money to be had to do things if we, you know, had played ball to a certain point? Does that figure into the equation or is that not, am I just not on that wavelength of, you know, this intense religious, religious belief? Yeah, that is, again, a really good question. You would think right now the economic pressure is impossible and that especially if the drought continues and the pressure of starvation and the inability to take care of Taliban fighters, that there would be a move towards adjusting, towards reforming or being less repressive. I think the big question is thinking about whether the Taliban is able to maintain its supporters. So if it can maintain its supporters without reforming, and, and the way I see that happening is just telling the supporters, just take what you need. <laughs> just get what you need from wherever you need it. Uh, and then that would mean enormous and greater violence. And I could see that as a likelihood because in many ways, uh, although the Taliban is trying to assert um, central control for a good long time, there's been highly decentralized fighting and commanders empowered in different parts. So I'm, I'm, I don't know. I think that is the 
hope and from the on the part of the West. That's why the economic sanctions and the belief that we should not give in. Uh, but I don't know if that will be borne out that they will respond to these economic sanctions or whether or whether the situation will simply become more violent and for the least able to protect themselves. Again, those are going to be uh, women, children, poor people, especially out in the hinterlands, uh, men who have been who have a, a past of having cooperated with the old government. Um, just, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't count on the Taliban to adjust. Uh, and you wonder how much can change or, or you wonder how much they can try to subvert the sanctions. So one of the things I was reading is that poppy production is going way up and the you know international drug networks are likely going to be re-energized to move material in out of Afghanistan uh, the extent to which Pakistan and maybe even Saudi Arabia is providing I mean I don't have I don't have data about that so nobody quote me on that but those would be those would be the potential suppliers, helpers of aid, underground aid. And in some ways, you think about Saudi Arabia feeling very empowered right now. Uh, and the reason I say that is that with Russian oil off the market uh, and the Americans and others um, making, making it clear to the Saudis that we need them and they're not really responding just yet to uh, increasing the taps, the oil taps, but this could give them leverage. So I don't know. You know, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but we've mentioned the last 40 years, you have a society that was invaded by the Russians and then it, they fight off the Russians and leave. And then the Taliban takes over and then the U S comes in, tries to stabilize. But you mentioned that the government's not popular because it's corrupt and, and violent. What does the average Afghan want? I think the, the average Afghan wants to live in peace. The, and when I say that, I mean, in the, you know, let me just live my life. Let me have my children and grow up. Let me have enough to eat. Uh, and now, of course, you have some who are highly ideological and, and their idea of peace might be different. But I think that so many folks just want to live in peace and they don't really even know what that is. And I just want to take you back to the 80s. It's really important for us to realize that the, the resistance to the Soviets were the Mujahideen. Those are the holy warriors. They are financed enormously by the United States and the Saudis. And when they defeat the Soviets, which is a wonderful thing in, in many ways, but then they turn their sights on other targets and they see the United States as an important and the West as an important target. Now this gets all tied in with developments in Iraq. The, the first Iraq war, when the coalition unites to expel uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq from Kuwait, right? That's in 1991, in early 
91, the coalition goes to war. George H.W. Bush assembles the coalition over the from from July 1990 through and, and has the UN behind him. But thereafter, in order to police Iraq, to make sure that Iraq isn't abusing its citizens further, the Kurds and the Shia, we have no fly zones. We're also trying to make sure that the Iraqis go through with their commitment to get rid of their weapons of mass destruction and prove that. The U.S. bases or, or maintains its bases and its stationing of 100,000 troops, if I remember correctly, in Saudi Arabia. And this infuriates bin Laden. It infuriates bin Laden as, and it becomes a kind of causus belli, both because the U.S. are there polluting the holy grounds of is. Islam in Saudi Arabia. Uh, second, because the sanctions against Iraq throughout the 1990s, when we're not at war with Iraq, but when we're trying to squeeze Saddam and try to get him to, to open up and give up any weapons of mass destruction that he might have, mostly this was chemical weapons, but to prove that he didn't have nuclear weapons. The cost, the, 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 the violence, done to ordinary Iraqis because of poverty. We didn't really get the smart sanctions yet. Uh, we didn't have in place sanctions that were well targeted. And so they really hurt ordinary people. And in fact, allowed a lot of those, those people close to Saddam Hussein to make a lot of money because they were controlling the goods and controlling the black markets. Uh, and so bin Laden sees the United States as a, a, a terrible actor because of, you know, we're infidels and we're in Saudi Arabia. We're hurting the Iraqis, the ordinary Iraqis, good Muslims, and then we support Israel. I mean, that's always the big problem. So that is what inspires his fatwa, his decree that you have to kill Americans wherever you can find them. And, and then that helps to provoke ultimately 9-11 and then brings us back into Afghanistan. So it's this, this tangle of, you know, I, I say to my students, we can often think of the early involvements as the good wars or the good efforts, but they had these consequences uh, that no one ever expected. And I guess going back to your issue about by the time you get to the 2000s, and and the peace that's made in the 2000s, Afghanistan is still incredibly divided. The government that comes into place is in many ways a government of warlords, right? And so we forget, we, we, we allow the world, we meaning the United States, decides to forget that this one is a war criminal and that one was highly abusive out in because they're not Taliban. They're, you know, the regular retrogrades <laughs> um, and Hamid Karzai and some of the others, you know, speak English and have been well educated and they're going to pull this together. But this is a country that is not united and that doesn't have an administration that can unite, if that makes any sense. And again, the ethnic differences are really important uh, in helping to motivate people to support 
this is my this is my leader who I I support and I want to see him in government. All in all, it sounds like an awfully intractable problem. Right. I always tell my students, if foreign policy were easy, there wouldn't be any problems. <laughs> and we would be able to solve them. But it is so, it, 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 you know, there, it, there, there are no easy answers. And force, force is important. Uh, it, it ha- but it, it, and it needs to be applied at times, but force does not solve everything and and it can also backfire. And, and there are other ways to use power and and we have to work hard on it. But yeah, this is this is an intractable and long-term problem. 40 years and counting. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.